Hello and welcome to the Spoke to Be podcast episode 48. My name is Stephen Shelsey and I am your host. Coming to you after the conclusion of another NHL season and this time the Boston Bruins are not Stanley Cup champions. Yes, unfortunately, Game 7 has come and gone. The St. Louis Blues won it and won the Cup and have been celebrating ever since. And it is uh, pretty um, pretty crushing, pretty, pretty tough defeat uh, for the Bruins, their players, coaches, management, fans. It's just tough. Um, you know, you uh, the, the game itself, I mean, from a neutral perspective, the game itself honestly wasn't that entertaining. You know, the Blues just kind of, uh, when they got their first goal, just sort of slowly choked the life out of the Bruins and didn't give them much, especially in that second period. Um, and, you know, it's just a big uh, big what-if for the Bruins, which is a bad feeling because, you know, it's one thing if you get to a Game 7 and you lose, but you pour it all out on the ice and you don't leave anything back, give 100% and all that, but... I just don't think that the Bruins necessarily did that in that Game 7. And it wasn't, I'm not saying that they weren't trying or anything, but it just felt like they they had more um, to give, you know, uh, they they had another level that they could have taken it to. And, I mean, that's something that I've been saying most of the, most of the playoffs, really. Um, you know, it never felt like, there were games here and there, and certainly... Uh, moments um, in specific games where the Bruins were playing at a very high level. But overall, it just, you know, they, they just kept winning, but you just kept telling to yourself, well, you know, they can do this better, they can do that better, they can still play at a higher level. And you said it throughout the cup final as well, right? I mean, they're up 2-1 after three games, Um you know, but the guys in that locker room themselves said, "There's still more. There's still another level we can reach. We can still play better." Um, and then, you know, lose game four, lose game five, which was just a dud for the Bruins. And then they they play a very strong game in game six, and that sort of led you to believe they they got it in them for one more game, one more time at home. Um, I said last week on the podcast, you know, the Bruins really going to lose. Uh, three three games at home in a series. I didn't think it was going to happen, and it did. So, um, I mean, look, give the Blues credit. They they played literally the perfect road game. They they weathered the storm in the first ten minutes, grew into the game, got the first goal, and by the end of the first period, they had four shots on net and they had two goals to show for it. So, um. I mean, that's what you want to do. Then they, you know, made things tough on the Bruins. Anytime they tried to enter the zone, they clogged up the neutral zone. They kept shots to the outside for the most part, and their goalie stood on his head. Um, the, the biggest moment that I'm sure, you know, has already been talked about at length from that game was, without a doubt, 10 seconds left in the first 
Um, after a really strong shift by the top line for the Bruins, where they had a couple chances, the Blues sort of broke the puck out, um, caught the Bruins uh, at the end of a long shift. Marshawn was back in the neutral zone, sort of in no man's land, wanted to go for a change, but saw the play coming this way. So, you know, tried to step up into Jane Schwartz, um, who chipped it by him. He he went in for the puck, and Marshawn just kind of curled away and went for a change, left a gaping hole on the ice in the in the Bruins' defensive zone. Uh, Schwartz found Alex Petrangelo as a late man coming in, made a little forehand backhand move and slipped it by Rask, um, which made it two nothing. With what was it like about eight seconds left in that first period, and that really, I think, just took the the wind out of the Bruins' sails. You know, you you go in to the first intermission down one nothing. It's no big deal. Um, you know, they had plenty of chances on Bennington. You're still feeling good about your game. You know, you got to score anyways. So being down one nothing doesn't really change anything. Um, but being down two nothing and giving up a goal in the way they did with less than 10 seconds to go in the first, those goals that, you know, with less than a minute left in, in the period, they always seem to come back to, to haunt you. Um, you know, the other team just gets so much momentum and now the blues are just saying, we just go play our defensive game and, you know, they're not getting two goals tonight. And sure enough, they couldn't, um, you know, as much as the Bruins tried and pressed in that, especially in that third period, I mean, that save on Joakim Nordstrom about halfway through the period uh, was probably the save of the game for Bennington. And a couple minutes after that, Brayden Chen scored to make it 3-0, and that was it for the Bruins. The The Blues added a fourth, and Mekras looked scored with a couple minutes left to make the score look a little better. But it was a dominating performance by the Blues um, so I mean, give them credit. The Bruins, you know, this one will, this one will hurt forever, really. Um, you know, they they talked about it post game. Every player pretty much just said the same thing that you know they're gonna think about this game for a long time, and that feeling's never gonna go away. Um, you know, to get to a game seven in the Stanley Cup final at home, and to put forth that kind of uh, display just wasn't good enough. Um, you know, the the mistakes that they made, the chances that they weren't able to bury, uh, you know, two months of good playoff hockey essentially goes down the drain with one bad game, which, I mean, it's a shame. You know, it's a, it's a shame that the Bruins couldn't win it for Tuca, um, you know, based on how well he played all postseason. Um, you know, shame that these young guys now have to sort of carry that extra burden that, you know, maybe they didn't do all they could on the biggest stage. Certainly the vets, um, those guys in the top six will, will have to take their lumps for this one. I mean, I tweeted out the, uh, the top six numbers at the conclusion of the series, I think the Bruins had something like 15 combined points from their top six, and most of it was... They, they had six even-strength points from their top six guys combined in the seven games. The Blues had, I think, like 24, something like that. So, I mean, that's where the uh, 
that's where the series was won. You know, I said before game five, whichever team's top six plays better in, in two out of the final three games was the team that was going to win the cup, and it was certainly the Blues um, who did that. Game five, the Blues scored twice. Once was Ryan O'Reilly, once was David Perron. Both of those guys are in their top six. And in game uh, seven, they had goals from O'Reilly and Shen and Zach Sanford were the three forwards who scored. Um, For the Blues in game seven, all those guys are in their top six. So that's that that was i mean the story of the the series you know the the blues best players especially as the series got you know later and later they were their best players and can't say the same for the bruins their best players let them down which is why you know it's it's a tough feeling cuz you just kind of compare it to last year and i know they weren't in the cup final last year but when the bruins season ended last year it was because they didn't have any depth scoring, and when teams shut down the top line, they just shut down the entire team. It was almost the opposite this time around. The top line got shut down far too often, given the the uh, pedigree of those guys, but the depth guys kept them alive. I mean, think of the guys who... The, the game-winning goals um, for the Bruins in this series, Game 1 was Corrali, Game 3 was Corrali, and Game 6 was Brandon Carlo. You know, you had goals from Joakim Nordstrom, Nola Chari, uh, Charlie Coyle, and, you know, Marcus Johansson was maybe the Bruins' most consistent player in the, in the Cup Final. Um, you know, Dan Heinen had a, a solid two-way performance. But... Unfortunately, Bergeron and Marshawn and Pasternak and Krejci and DeBrusque really let this team down. Um, and that's a bad feeling because, you know, I, I certainly didn't think that the Bruins would lose the Stanley Cup because of their best players. Um, but, you know, that's what it turned out to be. And the the Marshawn, you know, m- mistake or whatever in Game 7 was sort of the the culmination of all that, you know, earlier in that period, he had a golden opportunity to put the Bruins ahead, uh, one nothing on the power play, took that cross ice pass from Bergeron, had a had a wide open net to shoot at, he just needed to stick it in the top left corner, and instead he just shoots it right in the middle uh, and allows Bennington to get back over, and that was the big moment, you know, the the first goal in a Game 7 of the Cup Final is so important. It's been, I think, eight eight games now, eight Game 7s in the Stanley Cup Final uh, since a lead change has happened, which is just insane. Um, you know, so pretty much whoever scores first wins, and that was certainly the case tonight. Uh, tonight. In Game 7, um, you know, the Bruins had plenty of chances to score first. Marshawn had the chance. Krejci had a chance. Johansson had a chance. Um... And they just couldn't get it by Bennington. And once that first one went in, went in for St. Louis, you you know started to get a little bit of a sense that maybe maybe there was going to be that sort of game. And when that Marshawn play at the end of the first happened, it uh, just kind of snowballed the the effort from there. It it zapped the energy from the Bruins. They didn't have a great second period, 
in terms of generating offense and um you know that sort of was more or less all she wrote you know as much as they tried to push for one in the third it was more or less a little you know too little too late so it's unfortunately it's a very short summer for the Bruins um you wouldn't care if it was a short summer if it meant you won the cup but to get to game seven and lose is about as painful of a off season as you can have um so there's you know that's the main uh those are sort of my my thoughts from the series i think one thing that one one point i'll make if you if you're talking about a potential kind of turning point in the series as a whole um you know i mean there's a few different um uh, you know, scenarios you could pick. Um, certainly that power play opportunity the Bruins had in game four, uh, midway through the third, tied up at 2-2, that would be a big one. You know, you score there and you potentially take both games in St. Louis, um, you know, go up 3-1. You know, that's a that's a huge difference. You could definitely look at game five and the lackluster effort they put forth in that one. Um, but I think that the the turning point in this series, maybe not the turning point, but I, I think the biggest moment of this series happened in Game Two, um, and I think you know without a doubt it was the the hit on Matt Grizzlick by Oscar Sundquist that knocked out the Bruins defenseman for the final two periods of that game and the following four games. Um, it just, you know, when the Bruins were rolling in game one, the second and third periods, they were rolling because they were just breaking the puck out very quickly, um, coming out of their own zone. And the best player at that, in my mind, um, on the Bruins is Matt Grizzlick. The ability he has to just, you know, get the puck in the defensive zone, make a quick pass either, you know, to his D partner or to a winger or even to a center coming down the middle of the zone and then, you know, get the play moving forward, you know, or even Grizzlick uh, skating it himself out of danger. He's just so um, important for their breakout. And you saw how good it was in, in the second, third periods of game one and how it just sort of led to the Bruins kind of steamrolling the Blues over those final two periods. And I mean... You look at period one, game two, yeah, it was tied 2-2 at the time of uh, Grizzlick's injury, but you still felt pretty good. I mean, they were, you know, they had two goals. They had clearly found some holes in Bennington, um, and you expected them to tighten it up defensively. And then that hit happens, and Grizzlick gets knocked out for the rest of the game. They go down to five defensemen. Um... Connor Clifton never really looked the same in that series uh, after Grizzlick's injury. Um, and the Blues forecheck just kind of swarmed the Bruins. You know, Chara and Carlo um, kind of struggled with it a bit, which meant that McAvoy and Krug had to do even more work. And, you know, that takes a toll on them. And uh, unfortunately, the the forwards weren't much of a help the final 40 minutes of that game 
And so you go to overtime and, you know, you're thinking, all right, we just need, you know, one shot and this series is 2-0. Um, and unfortunately, that shot didn't happen for the Bruins. It, it happened for the Blues, who took advantage of the Bruins' inability to break the puck out of their zone early on in overtime. Uh, turnover by Carlo led to a delayed penalty, which eventually led to the Blues' overtime goal. So that was, I think, the biggest you know moment in the series. Um, because losing Grizzly for that amount of time, and I know that they won Game Three, um, but you know I think Game Two would have gone a lot differently if Grizzly doesn't get hurt. And I think just the series in general goes a lot differently if he he stays in that lineup. And I know I'm a you know Grizzly fanboy and all that, but I, I really do think that injury had a just huge impact on how the the series played out. Um, and you know it's it's unfortunate, but that's that's what it takes you know to win a championship you you usually need unbelievable luck in terms of not suffering injuries and for the most part the blues were healthy um throughout the cup final uh and the bruins unfortunately weren't and you know it's not an excuse or anything because that's part of the game and all that but it just uh it just seemed like the series shifted a bit you know, after that Grizzly hit. So you can play the game of what if all you want. I'm sure the Bruins will themselves will probably do that this soft season, um, especially as it relates to game seven. But let's, you know, that, uh, that kind of puts the, closes the book on the 2018-19 season. I mean, you know, I, I wrote a blog on Monday, um, yesterday, and when you just look at the season as a whole, um, and you think back a few years to where this team was, you know, missing the playoffs two years in a row, um, losing in six games to the Ottawa Senators in the first round, um, you know, last year beating the Maple Leafs in the first round, but then getting their butts whooped um, by the Lightning in the second round to to see the p- continued progression that this team makes uh, is a uh, a very positive development if you're a Bruins fan. I mean, when Sweeney, when Don Sweeney took over, he more or less laid out the proverbial five-year plan. Um, he wanted this team to get back into the upper echelon of elite teams in the NHL, and he he thought the best way to do that was through compiling draft picks and prospects and building the organization you know, rebuilding the the prospect pool, getting young guys integrated with that, with the veteran core that's in place here. And um, obviously the firing of Claude Julian and the promotion of Bruce Casty played a big role in that and the Bruins shifting their style of play. But I mean, ever since then, I think the Bruins have like the second or third best win percentage in the NHL since Cassidy took over. So it's pretty clear that those two, Cassidy and Sweeney, have a very uh, a good relationship and a similar philosophy when it comes to how how the team should play, what sort of players um, should play for the Bruins. And it's easy to see now. I mean, they want versatile guys speedy guys, offensive guys, but also tough guys. Um, 
and I don't mean tough, you know, in the sense of guys that'll get in 15 fights a season. I just mean tough guys, you know, in the sense that Nolachari's tough and that, you know, someone like, uh, like Charlie Coyle, you know, is a, is a tough, big, physical, but skilled player. Um, you know, obviously Bergeron, guys like McAvoy and, and Grizzlick and Krug on the back end, smaller guys, but, you know, they, they play with some physicality and an edge to them. And that's how Sweeney wants to build the team. That's how Cassidy wants his players to play. And it's working for them. Um, you know, they came up one game short. It's, it's unfortunate. It, it stinks. Um, but they're, they're continuing to progress to a point where they should be a, an annual contender for the next few seasons. Um, the, the question will be, what moves do you make, um, whether they be big or small, in order to get them fully over the hump and back to Stanley Cup champions? Um, and I think that's why this offseason is so important. Um, and as we sort of shift here in the podcast to, to previewing the offseason, um, you know, this is, a, this is a really big one. This is maybe the biggest offseason that Sweeney will uh, oversee um, so far in his tenure as general manager. I mean, he's got some really big decisions to make. It starts with the restricted free agents that the Bruins have. So there's three of them this season. Uh, Brandon Carlo, Charlie McAvoy, and Dan Heinen. As of now, the Bruins have about $14 million in cap space. That's a rough number because people are saying that the cap should be about $83 million, but now there's some chatter that it may be a little less than that. So we'll, we'll stick with that. So they've got about $14 million in cap space. Um However, most of that money is going to get chewed up by the RFAs. Um, in terms of you know, highest to lowest salary, McAvoy will certainly command a big amount. Now, the question with him is, does he want a long-term deal, you know, eight years, at a high number right now, but maybe in two or three years, that deal will start to look like a bargain. Or does he look for more of a bridge deal, which would take him, say, to maybe the age of 24, 25 years old, and then at that point he signs his long-term deal um, You know, with the thought that he'll have the chance to sign probably one more long-term deal later on in his career. Um, so, I mean, that that's what he's looking for. Now, Sweeney has done an excellent job um, in terms of re-signing his own players over the past few seasons. The Marshawn deal is one of the best deals in the NHL. The Pasternak deal is a steal. Uh, even Bergeron's on a tremendous contract. And, you know, there's there's people out there that say the reason that Sweeney was able to get those guys, uh, Marshawn and Pasternak, under those, for those good deals is because of the Bergeron deal and the fact that, you know, maybe players don't wouldn't feel comfortable making more than Bergeron, right? I mean, he's sort of the the heartbeat of the team, the leader. Um, 
at least the forward group, and they see him making whatever it is, like $6.8 million. You know, maybe Marshawn doesn't feel right making more than that, which is why he makes just, what, 6.1, and Pasternak's making 6.6. So there's sort of a hierarchy. Um, I know Krejci makes more than Bergeron, but Krejci signed his deal before Bergeron. So ever since Bergeron signed his deal, no Bruin has surpassed that number uh, in average annual value. It'll be interesting to see if McAvoy breaks that trend. Um you know, I mean, there's a case to be made that McAvoy should make right around seven, maybe seven and a half million, depending on how long the deal is. Um, but who knows, maybe Sweeney can get him for however many years at six or six and a half million. Um, it, it's a very interesting case with McAvoy. There's not a lot of comparables that you can use because he, yes, he's technically played... <laughs> Or, or he's, you know, used up his three-year entry-level deal, but the first year he just played in the playoffs, which was six games. Uh, last year he played somewhere in the 60s game-wise. Uh, he missed the time with that heart ailment midway through last season, so he missed some time last season. Then he missed some more time this season, so he's only played in, you know, 120 or so games um, over the past two seasons. Um, So, I mean, he still has a lot of developing to do. He also hasn't put up, I mean, he's put up good offensive numbers, especially for a a player as young as he is. But, you know, it's not crazy offensive numbers, not numbers that jump out at you on the stat sheet or anything. So um, it'll... You know, it's a weird sort of uh, dilemma kind of that the Bruins are facing. I mean, the other issue for McAvoy, he has really no rights. Um, because of his service time and how he came into the league and all that, He he's not eligible uh, for an offer sheet, and he's also not eligible for arbitration. So really, he's either going to play for the Bruins next season or he's going to sit out. Um, now I, by no means am I saying he's going to actually sit out, but those are essentially his like only two options. If he wanted to play it that way, it's similar to what the Maple Leafs went through this past season with William Nylander. Um, he didn't really have any rights besides sitting out. And so that's what he did until he signed his contract in December or whatever. So similar situation for McAvoy. And so it'll be interesting to see what his deal ends up looking like, whether it's a three, four-year deal or if it's an eight-year deal, um, and especially what the cap number looks like. Then you got Brandon Carlo. He should be a little more straightforward. Again, similar thing to McAvoy in terms of is it going to be a a bridge to three-year deal or is it going to be a longer, you know, six-plus-year deal? Um, But he should probably be right around the $4 million mark uh, for a cap hit. Um, you know, not a, not a lot of, uh, offense there, at least not yet. You hope that maybe his play in the playoffs, um, you know, builds that confidence a little bit more, um, and starts to open up that offensive side of his game. But, you know, he, he showed, I think in the playoffs, just how, 
talented he can be, um, especially defensively. I mean, he was going up against some of the best offensive players in the league night after night for two plus months, and he did a really, really good job of shutting those guys down, whether it be Austin Matthews, uh, Artemi Panarin, or Sebastian Ajo. You know, he was out there against some really skilled players each round, and then even in this final round against St. Louis, whether it be that top line that they had or the Ryan O'Reilly line, he was um, he was a beast, and you know, he definitely made a little bit more money for himself uh, this postseason. But yeah, he should be right around probably four million. You know, so let's just say McAvoy's at seven, Carlos at four. There's eleven million right there. You still got to re-sign Heinen, he'll probably be in the three million range, and there, there's your fourteen million. So, you know, just re-signing those guys, um, you know, takes up your cap space. Um, and we haven't even talked about their unrestricted free agents, of which there are three: Steve Kampfer, who probably seems. You know, said he that he would like to be back, but also said he understands there's a bit of a log jam on the Bruins blue line. And, you know, he's still, what, 31, 32 years old. So, I mean, he's still got some years left that he wants to play, and sitting is no good for him. So, I'm sure he'll move on for a better situation. Um, you got Nolachari, who could kind of fall into the Tim Schaller category. Uh, a team, you know, might might overpay for him a bit knowing that he brings some some leadership, you know, physicality, hard work, all that kind of stuff. So he should be in line uh, for a pay raise. He was only making like 900000 or something this past season, so he could definitely be looking at, you know, a, a two-year, four-, five-million-dollar deal. Um, and that just might be a little too pricey for the Bruins at this point, especially considering... You know, Corrali will be back, Nordstrom's under contract, Wagner's under contract, and uh, Carson Kuhlman looks like he could be a good fit possibly on that fourth line as well. Um, So there's him, and then the biggest one that they have is their trade deadline pickup, Marcus Johansson. Um, He sort of ties into the other two players that I want to talk about um, in terms of the, the big moves that the Bruins will need to potentially make this offseason. As of now, there's really no chance that Johansson comes back just because the Bruins just won't have the cap space to to get him back in the fold, which is a shame because, I mean, you saw in the playoffs how well he played, especially on that third line with Charlie Coyle. Those two could really do some damage, I think, if they, uh, you know, if they spent a full year together. Um, but you know, Johansson's going to get a a pay increase as well. He could be looking at a five-year, $25 million deal, roughly, you know, right around there. He's only 28. He's still relatively young. Um, and I think he's shown in the postseason that when he's healthy, he is still a, you know, high-impact player. Maybe he's not a true top six guy. You know, he could probably play in the top six a little bit here and there. Maybe he is better suited for a for a third line role. Um, you know, more of a depth role. But on a good team, those you know players are hard to find, and they really pay dividends as the Bruins you know saw firsthand. So, I mean, I would love to bring him back, but as of right now, it just seems like that's not possible. 
How could it be possible? Well, 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 the Bruins have a couple of players who are making some big money and who could potentially be moved in order to either A, free up cap space, or B, bring back some high-end talent. Let's start with the player making um, more. David Backus, I think we all know by now, he's got two years left on his deal, $6 million per year, and he's a fourth-line guy. I mean, that's just what he is. Bruce Cassidy said it at his end-of-season press conference. He said, Backus fits best on a checking line with you know, Corrali and Nordstrom and Wagner. Um, the issue is, is that those three guys together are making three, uh, three and a half million dollars, I think, combined. And Backus makes six million by himself. And he may be the worst of them all. Um, and it's unfortunate because look, uh, Backus has, he's had a very good career. Um, you know, I'm sure this Stanley Cup was hard for him, especially sitting the last three games, uh, watching his ex-team win. That's tough stuff. And then knowing that maybe you're not a part of the Bruins' plans for next season. Don Sweeney said, you know, he sees Backus as part of this team, but there's always a chance if a team, you know, comes along and says, hey, we'll take that contract, but, you know, we want this player or that draft pick or something. And that's something the Bruins really have to consider because freeing up that $6 million, would certainly allow them to bring back Johansson if they wanted to. Um, you know, maybe there's another guy that they want to try and bring in. Uh, but, I mean, that's the way it's going to get done. You know, you there's just not a lot of other guys on the team who, uh, who you can move at this point. You know, maybe you'd think about a guy like John Moore or maybe Kevin Miller, both making over $2 million next season. Both of them are hurt, though. Um, Miller's value is incredibly low right now, given his injury situation from this past season and the fact that he's, you know, at best a third-pairing guy. Um, and Moore now faces four to six months of recovery after breaking his humerus late in the regular season against the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. So he doesn't have much value either, um, you know, and he's signed for four more years at 2.2 or something like that. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, uh, other than that, I mean, unless you want to get real crazy and think about moving Krejci, which I don't really think is on the table, Bacchus is really the guy that makes the most sense if you're just sort of looking to free up some cap space, um, but it's certainly not an easy situation. You can't really buy him out. I mean, you can, but you don't really save that much money, and you'd be paying him for the next four years, which is not uh, not ideal at all. Um, I mean, the, the 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 most logical route would be to trade him to a team looking to reach the cap floor. And I mean, there are teams out there that are you know trying to do that, but. At the same time, there's also a lot of players uh, on teams throughout the league who are on bad contracts and whose teams are trying to move them. You know, very similar situation to Bacchus. We've already seen the Los Angeles Kings bought out Deion Phaneuf's last two years of his deal um, the other day. And, 
you know, there's more teams out there that would rather try and just trade the guys so that they don't have to pay those guys additional years. Um, so it'll be tough. You know, there's only so many teams that are willing to take on a bad contract or two. Um, and there's a lot of players out there who could sort of fall into the, the bad contract category. So it's, you know, it's not easy. Um, but the the wise move, if it can get done, would be to move Bacchus. Um, and then the player who will, you know, the Bruins have to make a decision on. Um, and it's probably the biggest, you know, decision that they'll make this offseason is Tory Krug. Um, I'm sure you all know the, the deal with him. He's got one year left on his deal at $5.25 million. Very reasonable number for a player of his caliber. However, that also means that in one year he will be a free agent and teams will, you know, be lining up to pay some big money to to bring him on board, uh, especially given his performance this postseason. Um, I think he has the second most points by a defenseman over the past three playoff seasons. Um, I think it goes Eric Carlson, then Tory Krug, and then John Carlson. So Eric Carlson just signed a eight-year, $92 million deal, which is $11.5 million a year. John Carlson, I believe, is making $8 million a year for the Capitals. So Krug has every reason to you know, expect to be making at least seven, if not eight, eight and a half million dollars on his next contract. I mean, high-end offensive defensemen who can run a power play like he can are really hard to find. Um, and teams will overpay for that because of the, you know, advantage that you can get with a strong power play. Um, I mean, the Bruins rode a strong power play pretty much to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final this year, Um, and Krug was a big part of that. If you're the Bruins, you've got really three options. You either either sign him to an extension, most likely this summer, before he potentially, you know, explodes again offensively next season and only drives that price tag up even more. You could let him play out this year, see sort of how the team is doing around the trade deadline, assuming they're still doing well, you obviously keep them. If by chance, maybe they, they're sellers, then maybe you look to move them then. But in the most likely case, you just keep them for your playoff run next year. You hope he helps you get over the hump. And then, you know, maybe at that point, that's when you decide to part ways. That would probably be the worst idea. Um, the third idea would be to trade him this offseason. Let me just say this. Tory Krug is probably never going to have a higher value than he has right now. Given the way he played in the playoffs, given the fact he's still, uh, tech, you know, essentially he's on a one-year $5.25 million deal, um, any team that was looking to upgrade their their roster, their defense, their power play is going to be circling the wagons to try and get Tory Krug into the fold. Um, he is, you know, 
dynamite offensively. He's one of, if not the best quarterbacks of a power play in the league. And he showed in the playoffs that he can you know, withstand the, the beatings that come with being a top four undersized defenseman. And he can play some strong defense against some bigger, stronger guys. So um, there's, there's never going to be a time where his value is higher. If you're the Bruins, does that make you more likely to trade him? I don't really know. It, I think it should. Um, you know, I think you legitimately could get a a top six right wing option to play with either Bergeron or Krejci. Um, you know, but a legit guy who could you know score twenty twenty five goals. Um, and I know there's maybe not a lot of those guys out there, but I know that there are teams out there who you know would love to have Krug playing for them and you know, would maybe give you, um, give you a, a, a good offensive player in return in order to get Krug. So that's the, uh, you know, that's the big dilemma the Bruins face. If by chance the Bruins could move Krug and Bacchus, that would open up, depending on how much of Bacchus's salary they may have to retain, at least probably nine, maybe $10 million um, in cap space. You know, and then you're talking about not only are you able to sign Johansson, maybe you can sign, you know, somebody else, maybe another depth guy or two. Um, and, or, you know, if you don't want to bring back Johansson, you can go in for a bigger name player. Um, you know, not saying that this is going to happen, but if you cleared about $10 million in cap space, you could certainly at least take a run at Artemi Panarin. Um, he seems pretty set I think on going to either one of the New York teams or uh, the Panthers but you never know and if the Bruins had the the cap space to do it maybe he would consider coming to Boston Um, you know but the trade route with Krug you could do it one of two ways you could either trade Krug you know more or less straight up for a a top six right winger, or you could trade him for picks and prospects along with cap savings and then use, um, use that, use those new assets to, uh, go and sort of plot your own course, identify a player that you think could help, um, the forward group or even the back end. If you want, you know, the, uh, the Bruins, defense situation is very it's a very interesting thing i i tweeted it out on monday the uh the picture of their salary cap structure on defense for the next few years um you know they've got mcavoy and carlo as restricted free agents this year and steve camphor as a unrestricted free agent next season they would have zidane chara um kevin miller as and Tory Krug as unrestricted free agents, and then they'd have Connor Clifton as a and Matt Grizzlick as restricted free agents. Grizzlick actually might be unrestricted, but their contracts would be up as well. They'd have one defense. They they have one defenseman signed through the end of next season, um, and that's John Moore. So very sort of you know influx uh position group where you could really see them going a bunch of different ways um 
you know, Char's back for next season, but might that be his last season? You never know with him. I mean, at this point, it really is a, a year-to-year sort of basis with him. Obviously, Krug will be a free agent at the end of next season. Um, Grizzlick, free agent at the end of next season. So those are your three left-shot defensemen. They're all going to be free agents. Two, all three of your right-shot defensemen that were playing in the playoffs this past season are going to be restricted free agents either this season or next season. Um, you know, and then depth guys, Kevin Miller, Steve Kampfer, those guys will be um, free agents as well. So there's a lot of different situations they can go. They're very high on their um, first-round pick from 2017, Uro Vakaninen, left-shot defenseman. You know, they think he could... They hope that he is a top four um, defenseman for a long time. Does he play with Carlo? Does he play with McAvoy? Do you start him on a third pairing? You know, who knows? What about Grizzlick? Is he a potential top four guy? You know, he spent some time with McAvoy this season and also in the playoffs. Maybe that's a potential future pairing. Is there a defenseman out there on the trade market that you might be interested in? Um, you know, and maybe you can use Krug as a chip there. If there's one name that I would look at strongly, if I were the Bruins, um, Nashville Predators had the worst power play in the league this past season. It was one of the worst power plays of all time. It was, um, it's pretty incredible that they were able to win their division with a power play that bad. It's pretty incredible that they had a power play that bad, given the, um, the talent that they have on that roster, both uh, on defense and up front. So, Nashville's GM, David Poyle, he's never been afraid to make a big move. I mean, he traded his captain, Shea Weber, a few years back for P.K. Subban. Um, You know, he traded Seth Jones for uh, Ryan Johansson several years back. Certainly not afraid to, to swing a big deal. Would he potentially look at Tory Krug as a player who would immediately upgrade their power play and is maybe someone that they would sign to an extension? Um, right now, Nashville's got that really solid top four on D, uh, Roman Yossi, uh, um, Ryan Ellis, P.K. Subban, and Matthias Ekholm. Two left shots, two right shots, just a really solid group. Of those four, there's been a lot of chatter that Subban, who's making $9 million a year for the next five or six years, I think, um, could be the one on the move. If I were Boston, I would call Nashville immediately and ask them if they would be interested in swapping Tory Krug for, no, not P.K. Subban, Matthias Ekholm, left-shot defenseman, 28 years old, I believe, which is Krug's age, but he's 6'3", he's like 205 pounds, he is one of the most underrated defensemen in the league. He probably doesn't get the the shine that he should because of the other three defensemen that are in front of him on the depth chart in Nashville, but he is a guy who I think could be a legitimate number one defenseman um, on another team. And if you were able to potentially 
bring him to Boston. Um, he's only making $3.75 million for the next three years, which is one of the best bargains in the league. Um, and he's someone who I think you could pair with Charlie McAvoy, and I think that would be a dynamite pairing. Um, that would allow you to reunite Char and Carlo as more of just a shutdown specialty. Um, you know, I've been saying for a little while now that I think Char and Carlo should go back to playing together. Um, I think the Bruins should be looking for a new partner for McAvoy, someone more suited for his two-way style of play. Um, and I think Matias Ekholm would just be a tremendous fit for them. You know, would it... Would the Predators do that? Maybe not one for one, especially given the fact that they're a little bit up against the salary cap and they would be taking on an additional one and a half million. So maybe the Bruins would have to, you know, throw in a, a prospect or a pick or something to sort of even that deal out a bit. But he is one defenseman um, who I really think, I mean, I think it would make sense, right? I mean, Nashville is still in win now mode. You know, but they understand that that power play was a big, uh, big issue for them this season. And I mean, who better to to fix it than Tory Krug, right? I mean, he's one of the best on the man advantage. Um, and if the Bruins could somehow get Ekholm out of that deal, I mean, Roman Yossi would be awesome. But they're not moving their captain, um, who they just signed to a deal, um, and. They, uh, so you're not going to get him. You don't really need a right shot defenseman, um, in, uh, you don't need a right shot defenseman, which would be Ellis or, uh, or Subban. You're pretty set on the right side. So that's why I think. You know, Ekholm is the guy that they should be targeting. Now, you know, this is all just kind of speculation on my part, but that is who I would maybe like to see. You know, forget about trying to get a top six winger for Tory Krug. I think they have internal options that they can use to sort of sort out their forward group. Um, you know, so I don't think they need to really be wor- focused on that. I would look to bring in a guy like Matthias Ekholm. Given the situation, you know, that the Bruins find themselves in on the back end with eight of their nine NHL defensemen either needing a new contract this this offseason or next offseason. Um, and given the fact that I think it would make a lot of sense to reunite Chara and Carlo and find a new partner for McAvoy to expand his game even more, I think Matias Ekholm would be a great fit for the Bruins. Um, all right kind of running a little long here so i will wrap it up um we've got the nhl awards this week tomorrow in vegas uh from the bruins patrice bergeron up for the selkie if he wins it it would be his fifth selkie um trophy which would be the most all time uh i think he's got a very good shot of winning it i know he missed time this year with injury but um he was his usual dominant two-way self and produced a ton offensively, so hopefully he gets it. I believe he's facing off against Ryan O'Reilly, and I think Alexander Barkov is the third candidate in there, so we'd love to see Bergie win that. Friday, 
is the start of the NHL draft, which is when usually when some big trades tend to go down. Um, so that'll take place Friday and Saturday. And then two weeks from yesterday, July on July 1st, is the start of free agency. Teams can start talking to free agents uh, come next Sunday, I believe. I think it's the 23rd of June when the talking period begins. And then contracts are free to be signed come July 1. So, you know, it's crazy. The The season just ended and we're jumping right into, you know, trade season and draft season and free agency. So a lot coming up here. Um, keep it tuned into the blog all week. I'll, I'm doing a bunch of sort of off-season planning stuff. Um, you know, guys, uh, that uh, decisions the Bruins have to make, guys that want to see the Bruins go after, you know, young players that might get a chance, all that kind of stuff. So uh, keep checking that out. Uh, keep following me. Keep following the spoke to be on Twitter and we will talk to you all next week after the draft and who knows, maybe a big trade or two. So we'll talk to you then. Thank you, dear. Bring your sister over here. Let her dance with me just for the hell of it.